And welcome, everyone, to our Sports Medicine Weekly podcast. I'm Steve Cashel, joined by my usual co-host, Dr. Brian Cole, the head team physician for the Chicago Bulls, and one of the team physicians for the Chicago White Sox, sports medicine specialist, orthopedic surgeon from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. And Dr. Cole, how are you? I'm doing great, Steve. Fantastic. We've got a great guest on the line for this show He is Dr. Nick Verma, orthopedic surgeon for Midwest Orthopedics at Rush and the head team physician for the Chicago White Sox. And Dr. Verma, thanks so much for joining us here on our Sports Medicine Weekly podcast. And everybody wants to know Major League Baseball, the the on-the-field rule changes, pandemic-related protocols. Um, How's it going right now with uh, the look for Major League Baseball here in 2021? Well, good morning, guys, and thanks for having me. So, uh, as you all know, the season's a go, and everyone's excited about it. Um, So far, so good. I think the protocols have been very well thought out. Uh, The league did an amazing job, along with the Players Association, of taking what we learned last year, but also going to leagues like the NBA and what Dr. Cole has been doing, as well as uh, the National Football League and NHL, to try to learn from each other to say what are the best practices we can put in place to keep everyone safe. Yes, for the uh, physicians, uh, we'll, you know, normally there's a bunch of us who will go down to spring training. Is it going to be limited now to just maybe one or two physicians per team? So, so spring training and the regular season are going to be handled slightly differently because of the requirement for the intake physicals in spring training and, uh, and you know, the number of people that takes to make sure that players are seen and the, the staff is seen. Uh, we're going to be a little bit more liberal in spring at the beginning than we will be in the regular season. The regular season will go back to a tiered protocol like it was last year where there's only a certain number of individuals that are allowed uh, in the quote-unquote tier one setting. But during spring, um, we, we will have from Midwest Orthopedics about four of our physicians there at various different times making sure that uh, everyone's getting the care they need. Are they doing any uh, virtual intakes? Uh, like we look in the NBA, we did... Uh, virtual physicals. We had people come to uh, the closest city, or we did a virtual physical, and that worked out actually really well. Uh, or is everyone going to show up there and they're going to do it all on site? Yeah, I think the difference with uh, baseball, Brian, is of course they're in that new environment for a long period of time. Uh, and so uh, they're going to go through a quarantine process with a testing process that will allow admission to the spring training facility. And then once you're in, you're essentially quarantining in Arizona during the time frame of spring training. So we will have uh, pitchers and catchers reporting uh, or, or had pitchers and catchers reporting first and then the major league players. The other major difference is the minor league camp will not start until after the major league camp just to restrict the number of individuals that are in our spring facility um, at, at any given time. Yeah, we're visiting with Dr. Nick Verma, orthopedic surgeon, Midwest Orthopedics Rush, the head team physician for the Chicago White Sox, as the fans are looking forward to the start of Major League Baseball and spring training and then opening day. Uh, Dr. Verma, how much time do players really need to get ready for opening day? I, I think if we can get six weeks in, four to six weeks in, that's probably sufficient. As you remember, last year we had a fairly long shutdown and then a fairly accelerated restart um, in the middle of the summer. I think many of us were concerned we were going to see a lot more injuries than we did, which was very, um, uh, I think, beneficial from a learning experience. Um, And remember that, that in general, guys are not coming into camp cold. So we've already been in contact with our pitchers. They're already on off-season regimens. Most of them, uh, all of them, have been off the mound uh, a couple times at least at this point. So, you know, I think players uh, are certainly much more engaged in their own uh, upkeep, let's call it. And so 
the protocols are, are pretty uh, strict during the, even during the off season. I shouldn't say strict, but they're pretty regimented during the off season in terms of, of uh, players getting ready for spring. So I, I think we could shorten it more than we uh, have currently um, and still get away with a healthy season. Nick, do you have a, a sense of, uh, you know, the, I think the MLB did an amazing job last year. You just look at, I mean, we, obviously there were some games canceled and things like that, but that's unavoidable. But when you look at it, I think I would say from my view, it was a total success. Um, do you think that they're going to duplicate? It'll look just like that. Or are they making any changes based upon like what we know from the CDC? Like, for example, you know, we may be in a situation where, uh, even, you know, if, if vaccinations keep going in the way they are, you know, there it may be a scenario where some people have vaccinations, uh, which would be pretty amazing. I just actually saw the CDC said that if you're vaccinated and you have a close contact with a positive individual, uh, you don't have to be quarantined uh, anymore uh, uh, for contact trace purposes. So, like, that's going to be pretty amazing. But short of a vaccine, would you say that the policies and procedures during the season are going to be pretty similar? It's a great question, Brian. I think the, the take-home message is that um, Major League Baseball, like the other leagues, are willing to be nimble, and they understand that the information and the recommendations are changing almost on a daily basis. And as you pointed out, the vaccine may be something that significantly affects the way that the protocols look now compared to the way that they may look in July or August. And similarly, that may even affect our ability to have uh, fans in the seats sometimes later in the season. So. Um, the other point, though, is that we are starting in a time now where COVID uh, incidents, let's call it, is much higher in the United States than it was at any point during the MLB season last year. So I think we're all aware of the fact that this may be a little bit more challenging, at least at the start, based on the amount of disease that's, that's around. But I think we're also very optimistic that with some of the changes that are being made, the introduction of the vaccine, that if we can get through this first quarter half of the season, that there'll be an opportunity to um, make some adjustments on the fly that potentially allow us to become a little bit more lenient. But to begin with, uh, it's the same testing protocol that we have last year. And if anything, there's somewhat more regimented uh, requirements around the quarantine protocols and and, uh, out-of-stadium or out-of-training facility activities that are allowed or disallowed. Yeah, I could tell you we've learned, you know, some things that would be really interesting Uh, borrowed from the nfl you know there's this concept of avoiding meeting eating and greeting it couldn't be more important Uh, one of the things that we found is that those are the three things that led to it's not that people were getting infected it's that there's a very strong emphasis on contact tracing so if one player becomes positive um, and he was around uh, another individual in an at-risk situation and those three situations were uh, meetings uh, eating together where the masks are off or, or greeting people, uh, people would be contact traced out. So there was, an, I can tell you, there was a number of instances in the NBA where people weren't getting infected by another individual who was known to be infected. It was, from a preventative point of view, they it, it would shut down because people were what we call traced out. So I've learned a lot about that, and it's, it's fascinating. And my guess is the MLB will be the beneficiary of all the things we've learned uh, from the other uh, organizations like the NFL and the NBA. And as you know, Brian, it becomes strategic at some point, right, especially in MLB where, uh, for example, if your pitching rotation were to be affected, that could be disastrous for a given time in your season. Um, I think ML- NBA did use this, but as you know, there's also now a technology that's available that helps you um, by keeping electronic monitors on people when they're in the facility to determine who exactly yep. had an exposure that was at risk. So. 
things are changing quickly in that regard, too. Um, but clearly, the, the way that we practice, the way we have groups of individuals together, we have to be thoughtful about that in case there is a positive and, and how it may affect the team over the subsequent two weeks. Yeah, we're visiting with Dr. Nick Verma, head team physician with the Chicago White Sox. It's our Sports Medicine Weekly Podcast with Steve Cashel and Dr. Brian Cole. Uh, Dr. Verma, from what I understand, players will be encouraged to get vaccines but not required to get them, correct? That's correct, and I think that's reflective of what, what pretty much is happening in broader society, including in the medical field, where you know we've all been offered the vaccine, but it's not been a requirement at this point. And I think given the fact that it's, we're relatively early in our experience uh, with the vaccine and there's still some question marks in, in some people's minds regarding safety and efficacy, et cetera, um, in my opinion, that's, that's the right place to land for right now. Also, Dr. Verma, um, what about uh, Major League Baseball players, on-field staff, non-playing personnel um, wearing electronic tracing wristbands from the start of spring training and face uh, disciplines or violations? Is this something you're aware of as well? I haven't heard about it, Steve, frankly, in terms of discipline violations. Um, the, the biggest use of the electronic tethering system is for in-facility uh, use so that if there is a positive case, we can, uh, we can track it. Uh, but to be honest, I'm not aware of any out-of-facility tracking system that, that's going to be used uh, to, to help maintain uh, quarantine practices. Yeah, I, I, my guess is they'll do something that's sort of an imperative just because um, it, they're unobstructive, they're, they're unobtrusive, I should say. And um, you know, we, you know, when I check in for a game, I put that thing on, and um, it, it just basically is all for contact tracing purposes, even though we're testing liberally uh, and the testing's been working well. Um, I would say that this is sort of the last effort to make sure that some person doesn't take out another individual or if they are exposed, they're able to be watched appropriately. The other thing, uh, Nick, that we've learned is that um, the point of care tests, which give you a result in, within 30 minutes, uh, has really been lagging behind lab-based PCR tests, which is still the standard. So. You know, for the listeners, there's these point of care tests, which are you can see them, you can get them, you know, on the street basically if you at these different sort of kiosk type uh, places. But their sensitivity is not great. You you have to have a much higher viral load uh, to trigger one of those tests, it seems. But we've had very reliable testing when it comes to lab-based PCR tests. So when I think about where we are now and where we were months ago, it's an entirely different world as far as uh, testing is going. And thankfully, as you, as you put, you know, the prevalence of the disease has affected so many people that there's actually, at least in Illinois, there's been a decrease in testing uh, just because, you know, of, of, of the numbers. Uh, but it's, it's been pretty fascinating how far we've come with, with testing and the availability of testing. No, I was just going to say that, you know, that's another change for Major League Baseball, because at the time that we started last year, the access to testing was pretty limited. There was you know, a, a big run-up to, to generate testing for society as a whole, and I think we're at a much better place. And we've landed at the same place that the NBA did, which is point-of-care testing is used as a supplement when necessary, um, but it, it's not the primary tool uh, for the reasons you stated. And then you mentioned, Dr. Cole, PCR testing. Um, is that mostly done by saliva samples? Uh, PCR testing can be done through, na- it was traditionally nasal, so that the, those in the early phase, and these are still out there because, uh, you know, some these are some labs only do this type of uh, method where you, it's the deep nasal swab where they kind of go way up there, and it's, 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 it's uncomfortable. Uh, since that time, there's been an evolution in PCR testing, uh, which is basically, you know, RNA testing that... Um, Look, uh, is lower down in the nose, so then lower nares, 
and then also uh, throat swabs, and then saliva. So all of those can be PCR testing, and there's been a sort of a, a gravitation to the same level of sensitivity and specificity and accuracy of all of those tests that are PCR-based. I think the take-home is that there's nothing better than a PCR test at this juncture, including antigen testing, to see if someone's actively infected uh, who, who could be a carrier. Uh, so, yeah, so it, we, it, there's a variety of options, saliva being one of them. And, Steve, just to follow up on that, you know, one of the problems with the traditional nasopharynx test that Dr. Cole was describing is it has to be done correctly. So you can't just go in the tip of the nose with those. You have to actually go all the way back, which is uncomfortable, and the, the, the person obtaining the test has to be skilled in doing it. So I think that's one of the reasons these saliva tests tend to work better is because they're a little bit more idiot-proof in terms of making sure the test is done correctly so you don't end up with a false negative result. Again, we're visiting with Dr. Nick Verma, head team physician with the Chicago White Sox. I'm Steve Cashel with Dr. Brian Cole. It is our Sports Medicine Weekly podcast. Dr. Verma, take us back to last season when you when you got to, got done with it in uh, in October and you're able to uh, exhale, so to speak. Um, boy, we, we you know we got away with a lot, huh? I mean, surprised that uh, we got through the major league season. And um, I know a couple players got it here and there, Yoan Mankata for the White Sox. But overall, um, it, I think the fans are very pleased that uh, the season was able to be completed and um, what were your feelings like uh, when the White Sox season ended? Yeah, it was clearly a roller coaster ride, right? Because we we had the shutdown, nobody really knew what was going to happen. We had the restart and then fairly early on we had a couple of teams that had um, a significant outbreak that uh, that really put the season in jeopardy. And again, I have to credit Major League Baseball and the Team Physicians Association for understanding that a zero tolerance policy was probably never going to be successful. I think they learned uh, from those episodes. Uh, they were constantly updating the testing protocols. I think in general, when you look at where we ended up through the season and the number of positive tests that we had, we were well, well, well below community rates of transmission. And I think that, to me, was, uh, in my mind, the most reasonable goal was to say that if we can keep our players as safe or safer than they are in the general community, um, then provided all the things we had with opt-outs and, and screening for high-risk individuals, et cetera, then, then we were successful in making it a safe place to play. And I think we did that and we exceeded that and, and everybody was at the end of the season relieved, number one, but I think pretty proud of the work that was done and, and the fact that we, we got it done in a safe manner. Yeah, I think, Nick, you're going to find as you enter into spring training, you'll be probably a lot more relaxed now than before. Obviously, you know, we've been privileged to get the vaccine, so that does change the dynamic a bit. But the the policies and procedures were so dense, and every day it was different. And I, I can just tell you, speaking from the NBA point of view, it's become in, incredibly routine in terms of um, daily testing, um, same-day testing, testing right before the game, testing after the game, uh, precautions, how they eat, how the food is prepared. I mean, it's it's an entirely different world right now. It's going to be strange to go back, and I'm not sure when it's going to happen, but you, you'll find that like this is like your new status quo, and you'll, you'll stop thinking about it, unlike before where we just didn't know what the next day was going to bring. It's been pretty interesting evolution, I should say. No question. I think the new normal is here, and, and for all of us, whether it's in baseball life or other life, some of the things that we would never have imagined have become pretty second nature at this point. Yep. And finally, Dr. Verma, I heard a, um, and Dr. Cole, please uh, uh, give us your thoughts as well, but Dr. Verma, I, I heard a highly qualified physician say the other day uh, on radio that um, uh, a year ago at this time, we knew about 10% about uh, covid and uh, now we know about 80%. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that? 
I would say that uh, I think it depends on what you're talking about when you say 80%. I still think that in, in terms of a new virus and uh, its prevalence in the, community, in the community, 80% to me is probably a little bit optimistic. I think we're, we're 80% better on some categories like testing and, and how we do best in terms of preventing disease spread. But I, I think there's still a lot to learn in terms of how this virus is going to respond to vaccines, what the long-term implications are to the virus. Um, who, you know, what's the real risk for, for younger individuals or um, uh, kids, for example. So I think we're probably 50 percent at best. But I think, you know, as you've already seen, what, what we talked about three months ago is now being said to be incorrect in, in some cases. So I think that's an optimistic viewpoint uh, personally. Yeah, I would agree, Steve. It's kind of like you don't know what you don't know. Um, a lot of areas we're comfortable in, but I think that we're, st- that we're still going to have to look at the the, the outcomes of vaccination. Uh, we have questions about, you know, a, being an asymptomatic carrier, you know, reinfection. What do these new variants bring to the table? Are we going to continue to be protected? Uh, there's there's still a lot of questions, but as I implied, I think I feel a lot less anxious about it now than I did before because I can tell you that the things that we've been doing really have been working. You know, uh, the vast majority of people can who are not vaccinated still can stay safe by doing the things that we're, you know, we're hearing ad nauseum, you know, physical distancing, uh, masking for sure, and uh, proper hygiene. I think if you look at all those variables, masking has been the the, the biggest uh, change uh, in addition to physical distancing in terms of having an impact. But we're, it's going to be interesting. Six months from now, we'll, we'll know a lot more, but I, I think at least there's a little bit of comfort now. And I think I, I personally believe the vaccine's been a game changer for a variety of reasons, and you know we're in the process now of educating players and their families uh, to take the vaccine. And you know when we look at the hospital system on the provider side, we're about 70%, for example, of the hospital system is vaccinated, and we're shooting for upwards of 100% where it makes sense. Uh, so a lot of questions there. Certainly, we could have a topic on that in and of itself, but I firmly believe that uh, weighed against the alternative. Uh, getting a vaccine is a privilege and the right thing to do. Well, Dr. Nick Verma, orthopedic surgeon, Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, head team physician, Chicago White Sox. We wish you the best. And uh, thanks so much for um, uh, allowing us to uh, visit with you today and lending your expertise on everything uh, going on right now with COVID and MLB. Thanks, guys. Stay healthy. Appreciate it. That's Dr. Nick Verma, along with Dr. Brian Cole, and I'm Steve Cashel. You're listening to our Sports Medicine Weekly podcast. And what if the best way to treat your pain is to start with physical therapy? The same athletical therapists who work with world-class athletes and professional dancers can transform your pain before it progresses to something worse. Schedule your free assessment at athletico.com. It all starts with Athletico. Dr. Cole, before we let you go, I um, want to ask you, since you're the head team physician with the Chicago Bulls, about Bulls forward Laurie Markinen out for two to four weeks. It was reported with an AC joint sprain in the shoulder. Can you uh, define that for us and let the, um, the, the the folks know, our listeners, what that means? So, Steve, an AC joint sprain or the acromioclavicular joint is that small joint on top of your shoulder where the collarbone of the clavicle meets the scapula. And um, 
what, the most common injury, and it's not as common in basketball, actually, although we've seen two in the last two years uh, but on our team, but it's a typically uh, you know a biker or a skier who falls on the point of the shoulder and disrupts the ligaments that stabilize the collarbone against the shoulder blade of the scapula. And um, there's a variety of grades of these injuries. Uh, I can tell you personally, I had one myself playing uh, soccer with our, uh, with our uh, research team one summer, and it is very painful when it happens. Uh, I think that you know, when we saw this happen, you can watch the video. You can see he's in quite a bit of discomfort, uh, yet he still was able to continue playing. The next day is always much worse. But essentially, it's like an ankle sprain, but maybe in the shoulder. Uh, it rarely requires surgery when there are these lower-grade injuries, but they just are, are very, very uncomfortable. And it's interesting, when you with the way we manage AC joint sprains or acromioclavicular joint sprains in uh, a position or skill players uh, versus collision athletes can be very different. You know, in the NFL, uh, you can have an AC joint sprain, and you, you know you only get what 16 games, and it's every Saturday, and you know so you can actually get someone to play by even injecting them. That's still something that that gets done, uh, not uncommonly. But in basketball, when you have games at a high frequency, it's just not a plausible thing to do, and you just got to let the body heal. And uh, the timeline that we saw in the media was two to four weeks. Uh, he's a very tough, motivated guy. I think it's all about. Uh, you know, reductions in inflammation and letting it heal to the point where there's a high tolerance to getting back to activity. So uh, I, I can tell you that, you know, having had one, you, it can take a couple of weeks, but if you feel like you can push through it and not have your performance compromised, uh, then you have clear path to actually return to play. So um, it's a it's an interesting injury, and as I mentioned, it's managed differently in different sports, but this is one where time has to heal it to the point uh, where an individual feels well enough to do things like shooting a basketball, uh, which requires a lot of force across that joint which could cause ongoing irritation. Interesting stuff. And Dr. Cole, I hope you've tried Karen Malkin's new protein brownie bar and super food bars, best tasting bars in the market, certified gluten-free, paleo, and no added sugar. Karen's protein brownie bar, super food bars, available on Amazon and at KarenMalkin.com. Dr. Cole, great job today. Really appreciate uh, your help on our podcast. And uh, we'll look forward to the next one with you, sir. You got it, Steve. Me as well. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Brian Cole, head team physician with the Chicago Bulls and sports medicine specialist, one of the best orthopedic surgeons in the world from Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. And we'll leave you with this, folks. JRF Ortho partners with orthopedic surgeons to improve the quality of life of patients by enabling them to have an active life through the generous gift of cartilage and ligament transplantation. Please go to jrfortho.org to learn more or sign up to be a tissue donor at donatelife.net. That'll wrap up this edition of our Sports Medicine Weekly podcast. Many thanks to our producer, Shane Reardon. So long, everyone.